Thank you, Pastor Ken, for reading uh, to us from God's Word this morning. And thank you, choir, for Psalm 150. A special welcome this morning to uh, some, some dear friends, Owen and Andrea, as well as Mama TK from Zambia. Uh, we are so excited to have you guys with us this morning. I had the privilege to go visit the Walker family uh, with a team three years ago from our church. And Owen was faithfully serving the Lord. I, I met this, this godly young man then and, and met his, his, his now wife, who was then just a single missionary, Andrea. And the uh, Lord has now given them a young son, Cedar. I think. I thought he said sinner at first, and I thought, well, that's true, but, but it's cedar, cedar. Uh, if you guys know them, if you guys have, have been praying for the, 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 all the ministry going on in Zambia, please make sure you go and give them um, just a warm, warm welcome after, after the service. Well, tonight, I, I hope you will come back uh, for Rocky Family Night. Um, uh, Pastor Bill mentioned that I'm going to be talking about um, how we process the apostasy of, um, of, of pastors who walk away from the faith. And, and certainly there's a kind of a theological conundrum uh, for those of us who, who believe that, that a, a true believer uh, cannot lose their salvation. How do we deal with that? So we're going to talk about that theologically, but we're also going to look at some applications for our lives. How then should we live as Christians? So come tonight. Uh, the theme is, I kissed my faith in Jesus goodbye. Processing the apostasy of Joshua Harris, something that is uh, truly something we should mourn, but also learn from. Uh, but it's also time tonight, we're going to get a hear, we're going to get a worship the Lord together, and the youth are going to be leading us in that. So uh, we're going to hear from the missions team too, so come back at 6 o'clock in Fellowship Hall. For those who are just joining us, we have been going through the book of Romans these last couple months. We took a break for a couple weeks for our missions conference and then for another sermon last week. But we're picking up in Romans chapter 2 this morning. And just to place this chapter in the context of Paul's argument, um, I want to uh, remind you, looking back at verse 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, we really kind of see the thesis statement for this entire letter that Paul wrote to the Roman church in which Paul stated, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we have a summary of the good news of the gospel. And then Paul proceeds to unpack this message through the remainder of, of this letter. And, and so now we are seeing, and he, and he launches in verse 18 into the bad news of the gospel, right? The, the good news of the gospel wouldn't be the good news if it weren't for the bad news that we are all separated from God by our sin and we desperately need a Savior. And so in verse 18... Paul, throughout the, the rest of Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about God's wrath against pagans, who, he says in verse 18, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he goes into what that does to cultures and societies, people who um, completely, um, completely suppress the truth that God has written on their hearts and, and, and the truth that he has revealed through his creation and the moral degradation that, that cultures are subjected to because of the absence of, of God in their culture. But now in, in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul turns to the religious moralists 
people who are very religious on the outside, but who inside are actually hypocrites. And unfortunately, these folks think that they're better than everybody else. And so this chapter certainly includes the Jews. Um, most people in Jesus' day, most Jews, believed that their ethnic Jewishness would indeed save them. Consider this quote by Trypho the Jew. He wrote, They who are the seed of Abraham according to the flesh shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, share in the eternal kingdom. Uh, Jewish folklore had it that, that Abraham himself was at the gates of hell catching any Jew uh, and, and, and bringing him into, just because he was Jew, whether or not he followed God's law, right? And so certainly we're going to see in verse 17, Paul is going to specifically directly address the Jew who thinks that because he has the law and because he is, he is the child of Moses and Abraham that, that he's good with God. And Paul is going to totally demolish and deconstruct that mercilessly, okay? Um, but I don't think that, that this category that we're looking at this morning in verse 1 through 16 is exclusively for the Jews. It likely also included Gentile moralists as well. You know, there, there were religious moralists among the Gentiles. Not all Gentiles behaved as the pagans that we read about in verse 18 through 32 of chapter 1. An example that F.F. Bruce brings up is a contemporary of Paul's who lived in Rome, the famous Stoic moralist Seneca. Bruce writes this about Seneca. Not only did he exalt the great moral virtues, he exposed hypocrisy. He preached the equality of all human beings. He acknowledged the pervasive character of evil. He practiced an inculcated daily self-examination. He ridiculed vulgar idolatry. He assumed the role of a moral guide. So not all pagans were running around acting like those described in Romans chapter 1, 18 through the end of the chapter. But Seneca, despite his morality and his, his, his uh, if you were a Stoic philosopher and his, his great religiosity, he too was lost. So whether you are a moral appearing non-Christian this morning who is visiting with us, and if you are, if that's you, if you not, don't yet know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, I just want to say we welcome you. We are so glad you are here with us this morning, and we hope you'll come back. Um, but, or if you're someone who's like been in the church for decades, all your life, Someone who can quote scripture at length and, and eloquently articulate the five points of Calvin. If that's you, you need to listen to these words from Paul. Look at verse 1 through 3 of Romans chapter 2. Therefore, he likes that word, therefore. You have no excuse, O man, and by implication, woman. Every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So as I was reflecting on this, this tough uh, set of verses this morning, um, 
this last week, I thought it'd be helpful to look at these 16 verses and ask the question, first of all, what does this passage teach about us? And then we'll look at what does this passage teach about God? And then how does it point us to Jesus? So let's talk about how or what this passage teaches about us. And, and the first point is that we like to judge one another. We actually enjoy it greatly. And this is not a new condition. The 17th century political philosopher Thomas Hobbes noted that people are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. John Stott put it this way, this device, that is judging other people, enables us to simultaneously retain our sins and our self-respect. Simply put, focusing on other people's sin makes us feel better about ourselves. You've heard the adage, and we've talked about this recently, love the sinner, but hate the sin. And we certainly like to hate on their sins because we feel better about ourselves when we're talking about other people's sin. Maybe people's sin who we think are a little worse than ours. Well, remember, we're to love the sinner and hate our own sin. There's not a category of sin that anybody's got that we don't have in our own lives. And so love the sinner, hate your own sin. But we like, as human beings, and this isn't exclusive to Christians, by the way, um, get within any, tie, any, any group, particularly any kind of closed group of homo sapiens across any culture, and you're going to find that they really like to judge each other. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show. I don't recommend it. Uh, Survivor. They're all on an island, stuck together, and the whole time, what, they're just judging each other, right? That's what people do. And unfortunately, Christians do it as well. And, and that is, the reason that we like to judge each other, the second point, is that we are hypocrites. In fact, um, why don't you right now, we did this in our ABF2 with being ethnocentric, turn to your neighbor, whoever's sitting next to you, and say, hi, my name is Bob. I'm a hypocrite. All right, I, I would have said the same thing if, but, I mean, I could talk to my imaginary friend here, I guess. But um, we are hypocrites. We think that we're better than others, and our pride leads to hypocrisy. And that's because we love ourselves too much. We love ourselves so much that we often do not see the log in our own eye. Jesus said in Luke 6, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. We hypocritically judge each other all the time without much thought or effort. Last week, I was on a road trip, and I found myself sitting next to our dear brother, Pastor Bill Turner, and I noted once out loud that he was speeding. <laughs> but you know what? I noted that before I noted that I too had been speeding when I was driving. So why is it so easy to judge others when we're doing the same thing? You know, in the church, we see this all the time. They, they have a nicer house, so they're materialistic, when perhaps they are far more generous. Uh, and in fact, maybe we're making that judgment while we are being stingy in our own giving towards others and towards the Lord. She's such a gossip, and yet 
We're doing the same thing in our prayer requests, gossiping, right? Uh, the problem here is that our standard is not impartial. It's always tipped in favor of me. Um, I've, I learned, I, I hope, my lesson here, um, the hard way, never to criticize somebody else's parenting. Okay, have you ever, like, maybe you're a young buck, young couple, and man, these parents, I mean, these kids, they need to, they need to discipline their kids. Or, or you know, or, or maybe, you know, someone with teenagers, and then one day it's you. You learn a little humility. Well, we, we certainly have a tendency, we are prone to judge others in the church, but probably nowhere do we do this than in our marriages. The first year of marriage is basically sanctification on steroids. <laughs> first year of marriage, I learned something I didn't know before, and that is I am selfish. I saw selfishness in my wife from time to time. And for those of you who know Beth know that she's about the least selfish person on the planet. So what kind of a heel could think she is selfish? And when I did, the Holy Spirit would usually help me see rather quickly that I had four fingers pointed back at me. I don't recall the circumstance exactly what the um, altercation was about. But our very first fight I can remember, and it wasn't, you know, don't get too excited or it wasn't that interesting. Um, you know, there, there were no wild gesticulations or, you know, loud yelling voices, but it was our first argument. And we've been married maybe, I don't know, a month? I don't know. And we're in the kitchen and, and, and I remember we're, you know, we're, it got, we were upset and she walked off and closed the door, you know, with that little bit of umph. And, and, uh, but instead of like, as I should have right away, realizing that I was a heel and that I had sinned against her, I was, I was just, you know, um, uh, just, just thinking about, you know, how wrong she is here and selfish. And, and so I was kind of huffing around in the kitchen doing whatever I probably thought she should have been doing or something. I can't even remember. And, and, uh, we were in this little condominium and it had one of those uh, old school um, attics where you didn't have the door, the, the, you didn't have the ladder come down. You had to kind of move the little, the little uh, piece of plywood aside and set up a ladder underneath it. And so the Lord, uh, to get a hold of my, to kind of punch through my knuckleheadery, uh, decided to, to send that piece of, of wood sailing down and landing right on the top of my exposed bare foot um, just to get my attention. And as I was in midair yelping, like literally falling backwards before, you know, as the, as the, the pain was kind of shooting up through the nerves, I knew that that was from the hand of God to discipline me because uh, I was the one who was being selfish. One way to diagnose if in your marriage you are judgmental, um, if you're listening to this sermon right now and you are thinking, my spouse really needs to hear this, <laughs> then it is you who really need to hear this. Or if it's your brother or sister and you're thinking, my brother really needs to listen up here, is always criticizing, well, maybe it's you that needs to listen. Because Jesus said in Luke 6, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, hold still, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, Jesus said, First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. 
So what does this passage teach us about ourselves? Well, we like, we enjoy judging each other. It's part of our sinful nature. We are hypocrites and we minimize our sin. That's the reason. We minimize our sin and we don't only do it when we're thinking about other people and their sin. We do it before a holy God because we do not grasp his righteousness and certainly we don't grasp the offensiveness of our own sin. Consider these common quotes in our culture. Teenagers, listen up to this one because maybe you've said this to your parents before. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's doing it. So God grades on a scale, does he? Well, nobody's perfect. I'm as good as the average Joe, maybe a little bit better. That's kind of like saying you don't have to outrun a bear. You just have to outrun the other tourist. (laughs) It's basically saying, how can God blame me when I'm an average sample of humanity? What kind of a view of God does that reflect? Well, here's another quote. I believe General Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf was famous for this one. Uh, And I think this also popped up in a Denzel Washington movie somewhere. And I'm really not sure who said this first. Forgiveness is between them and God. It's my job to arrange the meeting. (laughs) Well, stop and think about that for a moment. The entitlement of the notion that God's job is forgiveness. That's what he's for, to forgive. Well, God knows my heart. You ever said that? You ever thought that? Yes, God does know your heart. He knows my heart, and that terrifies me. And it should scare you to death. Well, chapter 2, verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and uh, and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So we, brothers and sisters, are hard-hearted, unrighteous judges, according to the Bible here. And our judgments are not righteous. My experience has been that most of the people that are the hardest to counsel in counseling situations are not folks who've like gone out and like sinned hard, right? I mean, really blown it uh, and who are repenting. They're usually quite open for, for counsel. Um, I was actually talking with Nate and Aurelia about this. Uh, is this not your, your, your experience, Aurelia? Um, but it's often the religious who are the hardest to counsel. Uh, because they're often the most hypocritical and and have a hard time really seeing their own sin. They often don't see the ungrace towards others that is in their hearts. Philip Yancey, in in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells the story about a outwardly religious man named Big Harold. And Big Harold took Yancey when Yancey was just a child. His dad died of polio when he was really young. So he took him under his wing when he was a kid 
But as Yancey got a little bit older, he, he recognized that Big Harold was extremely conservative, very critical of the church, meaning he was critical of materialistic women who wore things like makeup, okay? Um, and he was dumb enough to actually say that out loud and, and write about it. He was critical of any musical instruments in the church that wasn't holy or godly enough. Okay, he was critical of the moral decline of our society. Some of that that he had ID'd was accurate, but he was also a racist. So he wrote scathing political letters denouncing our social sins, including things like racial integration of schools. Okay, this is probably back in the 70s and 80s. And so he immigrated to South Africa back during the apartheid years because of the fact that they were a segregated society. And he became a lay pastor in a small conservative church that he led into only deeper legalism. So years later, after getting all kinds of critical um, letters to his books, okay, Philip Yancey was in South Africa. This is back in the, in the 90s. And during, during still, still, I think, early 90s before apartheid had been uh, overthrown. And he, he, was, he, he, he went and visited Big Harold, hoping that underneath all the, the critical emails and letters he'd gotten, there was still some, some you know, of the heart of the, of the man he knew as a, as a child. And he was shocked to learn when he got there to visit the man's family that he was not at home, but he was in jail because he had been re recently busted for running a pornography ring. And that was illegal in South Africa. And he was actually not just running the ring, but he was actually mailing uh, very, very awful letters to prominent women in the culture, um, saying things that I can't say up here. So let me just read to you from page 221 how Yancey kind of concludes this. He says, when our plane left South Africa a few days later, my wife and I were still in a state of shock. She, who knew Harold mainly through his letters, had expected to meet a prophet dressed in camel skin, a John the Baptist, urging the world to repent. I expected some combination of that and also the gen general man from my childhood. In a million years, neither of us would have guessed he would be a prisoner serving time. After our visit, the first few letters from Harold had a humbler tone. When he got out, though, he began to harden again. He bullied his way back into the church. They had disfellowshipped him. Bought a new typewriter and started sending out more pronouncements on the state of the world. I had hoped that such an experience would draw him up short, make him more compassionate of others, less haughty and morally sure. Yet several years have passed and never again have I detected the slightest sign of humility in his letters. Well, the sad truth is this story that we're kind of, you know, shaking our heads at, it is not uncommon. It is, it is not uncommon. More and more, the longer I live, the more I see oftentimes folks who are super religious and super critical often have some kind of a, of, 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 of a, of a gross sin hidden away. Uh, it's often part of the, of the package. Well, please turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14, Jesus told a story of two men. And here's the setup for that. Verse 9, Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the right view of ourselves and others before God should be this. I am the worst sinner that I know. So anytime you see someone else's sin and you're tempted to point or to somehow secretly make yourself feel better, you need to remind yourself, I am the worst sinner that I know. And join Paul in saying that quite sincerely. I am the worst sinner that I know. Well, what does this passage teach us about God? Well, first of all, we hear and we see that God, unlike us, is the only righteous judge. We are not righteous judges. We are judges, unfortunately, but we are, we're not impartial, right? We are partial, but God's judgment is impartial. So God is the only righteous judge. And we see that in verse 5. There will be a day of wrath in which God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And that is because his judgment is impartial. Listen to these words in verse 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. As I was reading through these verses over and over this last week, I had an interpretive question. And that is, this passage almost sounds like works salvation. Well, John Stott addresses this. Listen to what he has to say. Some Christians, however, are immediately up in arms. Has the apostle taken leave of his senses? Does he begin by declaring that salvation is by faith alone? Chapter 1, verse 16. And then destroy his own gospel by saying that it is good works after all? No, Paul is not contradicting himself. What he is affirming is that although justification is indeed by faith, judgment will be according to works. You see, brothers and sisters, God saves us by his grace. But he judges us righteously and impartially according to our works. And that is with absolute impartiality. Pastor Kent Hughes explains further. He wrote, The basis of God's judgment of us will be our works. 
This does not mean that some will be saved by works. Rather, believers will give an account of their works. Let me hit the pause button here for a moment. Remember James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Genuine faith in Christ results in a changed life. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, back to Kent Hughes here. He says, Believers will give an account of their works, and non-believers will be judged according to their works. The standard of judgment for those with a religious heritage will be the same as those who have none. Works. In an eternally real sense, unrepentant man is making deposits in a bank account from which he will one day collect to his unending woe. God cannot be fooled. He is absolutely impartial. Such defenses as my mother sing in the choir, I'm a church member, my grandfather was a preacher, will never meet the standard of a holy God, end quote. I was actually speaking with a gentleman a few weeks ago, and I asked him if he was a Christian, and he said, well, I believe in a higher being. And so I asked him, are you a real Christian? And he said, my mother was a Baptist preacher. <laughs> that was his response. God is impartial in his judgments, and God's judgment is fair. It is fair for all mankind. Notice what this next section says about God knowing the hearts of all people, whether or not they have been exposed to his word, okay? So whether you've grown up in the church all your life or whether you have never once heard the gospel or cracked the Bible, God is fair. His judgment is fair. And that is what verses 12 through 15 address. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. That's what the Jews, Jews thought, right? I have the law. I've grown up with it. It's mine. God's going to justify me because um, I'm, I'm a Jew. The law belongs to us, so we're all going to be good. No, he says it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have a law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You see, God has given, according to this text, all humanity consciences, all people, no matter what tribe or, 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 or continent or country or, or village they come from, all people have consciences so that even if they haven't heard his word, they still know to some degree right from wrong. Now that surely gets convoluted in sinful, by sinful cultures. And, and it gets convoluted by our own rationalization as, as sinners, right? We can certainly turn everything upside down. We're seeing that in our culture more and more, right? Where what used to be upside uh, up is now down and everything's spinning. But still in people's hearts, heart of hearts, they have some basic understanding of right 
from wrong because of the conscience that God has created within them. For instance, cultural anthropologists and missionaries learn that even remote tribal people know in their hearts and they feel shame and guilt for doing these things. They know, even though they've never once been exposed to God's written law, they know that taking advantage of other people and dishonoring family and killing the innocent is wrong. They do. And, and they, they testify to feeling guilt for those actions, even when they've never heard from Scripture that these things are wrong. And the reason is, God has written it on their hearts. So God rightfully and impartially judges those who haven't heard his word before by their violation of the moral law that he's written on their hearts. That's Paul's argument here. So what Paul's doing is, is, is getting us all lost, right? This is the bad news of the gospel. Kent Hughes summarizes and explains well verses 12 through 15 by saying, God's judgment is so perfect that he takes into account one's moral perception in rendering judgment. To be sure, no one escapes condemnation. All fall short. None measure up to their own moral perceptions of right and wrong, let alone God's law. No one will ever be able to rise before God and declare that he has been unfair. His judgment is so precise that it takes into account the delicate moral perceptions of each person. End quote. So the bottom line here in this whole text is that all of us are in the same boat. We are guilty before a holy God. And that leads us to, well, actually, I have one more point I want to make about God. Uh, and that is we see in here some good news within the bad news in verse 4. God is patient with us, desiring us to repent of our hypocrisy and our sin. Look back at verse 4 of Romans chapter 2. He writes, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So God is a kind, patient God who desires that we repent. But there is an expiration date because our God is also holy. And he will surely punish the wicked. So how does this passage point us to Jesus Christ? That's how we're going to conclude this message this morning. How does this passage point us to Jesus? Well, look at verse 16. Paul writes, On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God knows every secret thought and motive and action that you've ever done. God will judge us through Christ. Now, did you realize that? God, Jesus said that. He was very clear about it. He will judge all, God will judge all mankind through Jesus. And so therefore, we really should fear Christ's coming judgment. So if you're not a Christian, beware of thinking of Jesus as simply meek, and mild. And it is true that Jesus went to the cross as a lamb. It is also true that Jesus will return as a king to judge the world. So turn with me, if you will, to the end of the book to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, 
verse 11. We're going to read through verse 16 what it's going to look like, this vision that John had of Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So God is going to judge all mankind through Jesus, the King. But brothers and sisters, there is good news, and that is Jesus died to save hypocrites like you and me. Are you a Pharisee? Well, Jesus redeems Pharisees. Look at Paul, the writer of this, of this, of this letter here. He, 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 he will redeem and save all who trust in him. A passage of scripture that my mind was drawn back to this week that I hope you've memorized. And if you haven't, I, I encourage you to, to memorize it and quote this one often. Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Brothers and sisters, the, the clock is running. This availability of salvation and forgiveness will run out. But Jesus died to save hypocrites like you and me. So put your faith, put your faith in him. We're going to close in a moment our service with a song. But I want to read it to you so we can really think about it. And, and as we're singing the words, think about it in light of this message from Paul about self-righteousness, about being a Pharisee, being somebody who thinks you're better than others, who judges others and the righteous judgment of God. And our only hope, who is Jesus Christ. The name of the song is Not In Me. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. No humble dress no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. No separation from this world, no work I do, no gift I give, can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But Jesus died and rose again. 
The power of death is overthrown. My God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Let's bow in prayer to this great merciful God.